You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. It is now 2023, and I'm Elisa Poteet, your host. Tonight, I am joined by three of my favorite people to have on the podcast. Mary DeRosa, professor at Georgetown University now, who's had an illustrious career long before that. Harvey Wyshikoff, who is fun almost anywhere, the former chair of the committee, who's also been a, a jack of all legal trades imaginable. And Bill Banks, who is an amazing professor at Syracuse, who has written books that you should all read. And you should basically read everything the guy has written ever. But I asked them to come and hang out with me today because I wanted to hear what they think is going to happen in 2023 in the area of national security law. So I thought I would say, well, hi, you guys. Thanks for coming. Hi. Good to be here. All right. Why don't we start with Mary? And I wanted to find out, you've been at Georgetown now for several years And I imagine after a career that was very demanding, I'm hoping you have some time to think about, you know, do the the deep sort of prescient type of thinking that we all aspire to do during our day job. But what have you seen in 2022 you think informs 2023 in terms of national security law? And what do you think we're about to see? I can think of a a number of things. I'll start with one that's kind of more on the private sector side, has a potentially a big impact on national security. And that is the Supreme Court has just taken up and we'll be hearing arguments on two combined related cases on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's the Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomna cases. The Supreme Court hasn't ever looked at this uh, Section 230 issue. The issue is in the Communications Decency Act of, I forget what year, but 96, I think. Congress included two pretty important provisions to tech companies. One, immunity they have immunity or they won't be liable for the words and actions or what is put on their platforms by other writers. They won't be treated as a publisher, so they they have immunity for that. And also immunity from liability for efforts to moderate the content on their platforms for harmful and other objectionable activities. So that has been given a lot of credit, those two provisions for allowing the internet and these platforms to grow over the years. But there's also a lot of criticism recently for the protection that it provides tech companies. So there are these two cases And the Supreme Court, for the first time, is going to hear challenges to those provisions. In the Gonzalez case, they both involve people who were killed by ISIS, one in Paris, one in Istanbul. And they're claiming that in the case of the Gonzalez case, the primary argument that the Supreme Court will hear is that when Google in their case, but, you know, the platforms use algorithms to direct users to different content, that they are no longer just a platform, that they are in fact helping to develop content. uh, And therefore, the immunity should not apply. And in that case, the the argument is that the algorithms directed the perpetrators to terrorist content. And then in the Tomna case, the other one there, the challenge is more to 
content moderation part and whether Twitter's efforts at content moderation were not sufficient. They were engaging in, that is, trying to get terrorist material, address it, but it still came on and they also had algorithms and targeted ads. So that's sort of a long-winded but doesn't get into all the complexities. But depending on the way the Supreme Court comes out on these things, it could be massive, have a massive impact on the business model of some of these internet platforms and could really maybe even either way lead to legislative action on this Section 230. Let me just add one little thing. I'm a little bit circumscribed because I've been asked to join an amicus brief in the Gonzalez case. And what I would stress on that is those of you listening who'd be interested, I strongly encourage you to read the government's brief because the government mm-hmm. brief is a very, very, I think, fair, balanced analysis of the issue. And the other aspect of this issue, which I think is quite intriguing, is both Justice Thomas and the former chief judge of the Second Circuit, Katzman, who usually is perceived to be a little bit more to the left of Justice Thomas, both agree on this issue, which is quite fascinating. Their agreement is that 230 has been read too broadly and that, you know, to circumscribe the immunity. And yeah, the Justice Department also has come out, as you indicated, Harvey, their position is that, as I understand it, that algorithms are development or should be outside of the immunity. And actually, Sandy Committee member Mary McCord and her group at Georgetown Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection have filed a uh, brief, which I actually signed in the Gonzalez case on the algorithm issue. You know, I wonder, listening to both of you, though, how do you disaggregate this algorithm, which they designed to push extreme content in order to monetize the service? I mean, how do you disaggregate that from the social media platform itself. I don't know that that works for me. It's by design, right? I think the argument is, if you read the brief that Mary alluded to and the McCord brief and the government brief, there is a way of distinguishing the concept of just being someone who is, quote, a publisher and not a curator. So the point is that, are you doing something that has some editorial function? And the argument is normally when you look at an ad, It doesn't bring up to you, it says related books, but it doesn't push those related books to you. This is actually saying, if you have an interest in terrorism or violence, here's a whole set of other sites you might want to participate in. So you're becoming somewhat more of an advocate than a traditional, quote, publisher. And I think that distinction is what's going to be sort of intriguing, because I think one result of that case, it will be sent back to the district court in order for a district court to do findings on this issue as how do we distinguish between editorial function and publishing function and how the algorithms fit into that reality. I would say, Elizabeth, stand by because your question will be answered, hopefully, with a remand to the district court. I hope so. I do continue to worry a little bit, though, when I looked at some of the comments or listened to some of the comments during the argument at Carpenter. And it did reveal to me that there was some pretty gross misunderstandings on how the technology we use today actually functions. And I think there was some conflation by some of the justices on the idea that geolocation information from cell towers was the same thing than a multifunctioning wiretap on an iPhone. And that concerns me when you begin to use words like 
algorithms, I certainly hope that they're able to track and that the briefs are in the record is sufficiently explanatory that someone with a towering intellect, but maybe very little understanding of technology can follow and make the right decision on the facts at hand. Oh, it's a challenge for the courts in all of these technology-focused cases to navigate those kinds of issues. I kick it over to Professor Banks, but I think one of my predictions is is that technology is not going away. The courts are going to be increasingly dragged into these issues. Hopefully, we'll have a bit of a younger bench that may be a little bit more au courant with the and be more digital citizens. But I, I leave it to Professor Banks for his comments on this issue. The younger bench, I think, is not coming in 2023. <laughs> On to other topics. I, I have a couple things in mind. First, I'd like to ask us to observe a cause for celebration. At the very end of 2022, the last few days, Congress passed an amendment to the War Crimes Act. And the amendment to the War Crimes Act enables the United States to prosecute war crimes against any perpetrator who is present in the United States, regardless of his or her country of residence or or origin. Until now, it's been impossible for the United States, for example, to go after a Russian who's engaged in war crimes in Ukraine who happens to be in the United States, unless we are able to prosecute the individual for tax fraud or a traffic violation or something. There's been no war crimes jurisdiction. As soon as President Biden signs this new law, so so far as I know, he has not as of today, but he will in the coming few days, we now have a clean war crimes act that allows the United States to deny impunity to perpetrators, regardless of their origins. And this was done, of course, in the wake of President Zelensky's address to Congress. I believe Congress passed the bill on the day or the day after his address to the both chambers of commerce. As far as challenges, I, you know, one comes from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. I think probably, you know, we can use that acronym, Elisa, because e- even my mother knew about FISA, rest her soul. The portion of FISA that's at issue this year is what's euphemistically referred to as 702. A title of FISA that was enacted in 2007 and then made permanent or codified in 2008 that allows for the collection of digital information from internet service providers and fiber optic cables without going through an individualized targeting process. It's become a critically important uh, tool for the intelligence community to have the capability to collect on that basis, given the rapid changes in technology that we've all witnessed, particularly over the last two decades. The problem with 702 is that it's been caught up in politics. And the politics were Obama, Trump, Biden era politics that now have all kinds of finger pointing going on, not at the uses and abuses of 702, of which there have probably been a few, but not that many, but instead over uh, allegations that traditional FISA, the kind that requires approval from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that orders and applications to rely on the traditional FISA mechanism were uh, weaponized, if we want to use a contemporary term, or politicized at least at the expense of Trump administration officials in the first months and and years of of his administration. So that indeed the title that we're going to be worrying about this year, the title that authorizes Section 702, 
uh, sunsets on December 31 of 2023. And because of the politics surrounding FISA writ large, because of the uses and abuses of traditional FISA, it's doubtful at this moment whether any kind of renewal of the more important Section 702 authorities can be achieved. It's really a fairly significant national security issue because I think most people agree in the intelligence community and lawyers who follow this stuff that we really need the capability to conduct this kind of electronic surveillance. Think about Chinese espionage, for example. Without the authorities that Section 702 authorizes, NSA can't collect on those who are stealing corporate secrets or those who are going after patents or those who are doing illicit crypto deals. And without those authorities, we're back to whatever authority that the president can muster by executive order. That's executive order 12333. And that authority would have to replace the statute if the reauthorization doesn't occur this year. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge, I think, during this calendar year. And the politics are quite ugly. But it's important, I think, for national security lawyers, without regard to partisan leaning, to point out the importance of the authorities that Section 702 contains and to talk about the examples of the successes that 702 surveillance has brought to the United States in ensuring our national security over now all 15 years, really since 2007 and 2008. So it's kind of a big deal. We're also in an era, I guess all eras are infected with performative politics. And it's unfortunate that I, I, I'm not sure we found the bottom of that situation that we're in right now. But I, you know, and I'd like to believe that every member would consider things as seriously as people like you do, Professor Banks, because I think we'd have better laws all the time. Let's hope not. I know that now there's been some changes, certainly on the House side. But again, performative politics, I think, really get in the way of adult decision making on the Hill with respect to anything that appears, at least to the public, to be somewhat secret. Harvey, I wonder about you. You've been a longtime observer of Washington's national security vicissitudes. What do you see in 2023? Well, I think I'm going to answer this taking a step back. And I think the issue that I'm sort of focused on is the new court's majority in a variety of cases from the last term that is going to raise fundamental issues about how we see what the traditional lines have been of executive power and federalism and congressional power. So the case that many of us are kind of focused on is the case of Moore, in which, as you know, the, the basic question is, once the state gerrymanders a election map, and that map is then challenged by state courts, because the Supreme Court has stepped back from reviewing election maps recently in a number of years in the Rancho case, the argument is that the legislature itself cannot have its maps reviewed by a state court. This, If that is affirmed by the Supreme Court, this will be a structural change that may result in having historic red states and blue states as once as the state legislature gets power, it reinforces its ability to have that party construct jurisdictions and districts that reinforce its ability to maintain its power. That will be quite a dramatic moment 
for the court and have huge, I think, democratic national security implications for what's going to happen as we go forward. Second issue that's raised some of these issues is also, it's a little bit boring for people, but it's a standing issue in which do the states have standing? And historically, what has been immigration-controlled federal congressional and executive power in order to challenge what the Congress and the executive branch is doing vis-a-vis this issue in immigration law. And we're confronted with, as you know, certain state governors busting up or flying up significant numbers of immigrants and depositing them on the front porch of the vice president's residence just around the block from me. And if there's not a consensus or sense that there should be a federal reaction to that state decision to move immigrants at will, this will create another longstanding set of structural problems for us, given the border problems we've been having for the last decade. So that to me is like where this court will conclude the appropriate lines of jurisdiction for our separation of powers and the appropriate lines of, quote, our federalism, of the distribution of federal and state power, given the tendency in the last number of years for a number of cases to come forward, reinforcing state power, state issues, not the least of which is from last term is the abortion case, or the argument is it should revert to state legislatures, and it was not considered by the majority to be a fundamental right. I think those issues are of extraordinarily grave concern. And there, I think from a jurisprudential level, what I'm kind of intrigued by is the magical jurisprudential process by which the court infers what a right is inside our constitutional framework. So if some justices argue that the right has to be specifically stated in the document, that's a very constrained understanding of what rights are versus using a necessary and proper analysis in order to infer what is a right based on understanding what the fundamental rights are in order to be effective. That to me is a huge issue given the current composition of the court and what that will mean for not only our national security understandings of the power of the executive, but what it means for how we understand and understand democracy in the modern period. With respect to the immigration, just for our listeners, the authority to manage things like diplomacy and immigration have long been believed to be memorialized, obviously, in Article 2 of the Constitution. But now there is a sense that the states are incurring costs and experiencing consequences from last year, over a million immigrants crossing over the border that may shift how that is perceived in terms of who has the authority on certain aspects of immigration. Is that right, Harvey? Yeah, I think I'd like to hear both Bill and Mary on this, but this is fundamental constitutional structural issues that the court the last term seemed not to be hesitant to take up. Justices who tried to take a middle position, such as the chief, they were sort of, some of them ridiculed in the majority opinions for taking positions that the majority did not believe was fundamentally correct as a jurisprudential matter understanding the Constitution. That's something that we have not seen in a very long time. And it's something that I think will have quite a dramatic impact given what the court has decided to take up as fundamental issues in this term and going forward. 
I think, you know, one of the things that's striking to me about the dispute over that's Title 42 uh, in the immigration setting is that no court has yet ruled on the merits. They're issuing injunctions and stays on the basis of the question of whether the states have standing to bring this lawsuit. So all the action so far has been about who's got the right to sue, if anyone. I think Harvey's correct there that that's a, probably not the case that the states have a vested legal interest here. And if they don't, why should the courts be issuing decisions to enjoin the executive branch from going forward with their way of resolving, not resolving, but you know, kicking the can down the road? to allow this issue to percolate. You know, there's neither Congress nor the executive branch has put forward any kind of reasonable package of measures that would begin to ameliorate the immigration situation at the southern border, at least not since early in the Obama administration or even George W. Bush. That's probably as close as we came to an immigration solution was George W. Bush's proposal, unless something like that is done between the uh, Congress and the executive. The court's not going to solve this problem. And all they're doing, I think, is either kowtowing to a partisan leaning on the part of some state governors or not. Well, Bill, you raise an interesting question because it also raises the issue, I don't know how Mary feels, which is what is the appropriate role for the courts in this issue? You alluded to, I don't know if Mary agrees, is that this historically would have been perceived as an executive function under Article 2 a determination in which the executive has an expertise in order to take action. And now we have the courts constantly in the possibility of giving standing to states who historically should not have been involved in this particular issue, given how we understand the allocation of powers. Certainly the courts have always had a role in interpreting the immigration laws. The particular standing question here, I'm not an immigration expert, but to me, it does seem new and certainly troubling. You know, just to kind of jump off of your comments and Bill's, the substance, which as Bill said, that, you know, the court hasn't, no court has yet addressed, or at least not in the matter that the Supreme Court has looked at, is you have a particular process that was put in place to deal with a particular emergency. And as I understand it, that states are opposing it because there's a new emergency and the federal government wants to the executive branch says that emergency is over. So it is as a substantive matter, it seems extraordinary to me that courts would be entertaining that uh, on the substance. As Bill said, the Supreme Court hasn't addressed the substance yet. They're dealing with the threshold standing issue. So it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out and potentially quite troubling depending on how it goes. Flying 30,000 feet above all of this, we have to remember that the individuals crossing the border through the crossings and, and making declarations of asylum have been pulled. The overwhelming majority of them say that they were motivated to cross the border at a particular time and location because of things that they've heard on social media, and which takes us back to this 230 issue that's coming up. And in the past, there has been a lot of foreign influence to affect elections using social media. And it'll be interesting to see in the fullness of time how much of this immigration uh, was directed by foreign governments or influenced by foreign governments who were attempting to make this an issue in the United States in much the same way that they have historically done with the abortion issue, 
that Harvey raised and with other issues that have been known to divide Americans throughout the last century. So it'll also be interesting to see, regardless of what the court rules, what comes to light about what has informed all of this factually. If I could offer my opinion here as the host and not as big a thinker as anyone else and enjoying listening to all three of you, I think we're going to see some massive seismic changes in what we're willing to block and forbid in this country. And I think we got some presaging of this when FIRMA was enacted and we saw a shift in the way CFIUS was done. And CFIUS, for those of you who don't know, is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And they review when foreign entities or individuals attempt to buy businesses or at this point land and other things in the United States. The idea being that much of our intellectual property has been pillaged through these purchases, as well as obviously corporate espionage, which Professor Banks was referencing when he was talking about the importance of 702. So I think you're going to see some hardening of of the Citadel. So I think that you're going to see probably some changes on things like just TikTok. To be honest with you, the Chinese do not allow Facebook in China. They do not allow our United States developed applications to be for communication to be used in China. Instead, they have a government sanctioned uh, chat platform, WeChat, you might be familiar with or have heard about. But I think that there is very little understanding of the TikTok algorithm. It's proprietary trade secret. And I think the idea that anything that the Chinese government can access in Beijing is somehow fine, given what the statistics are right now. And I can tell you, we've had experts on the podcast who have noted, and some that we're going to have in the future will say that the average individual in the United States who's between the age of 13 and 22 spends as much as four to five hours a day on TikTok. So the opportunity for foreign influence is massive. And I think even a performative Congress you know, that is caught in this need to do a dog and pony show constantly on television to raise funds for a two-year election cycle. I think even, even the silliest among them is serious enough to understand that this is a looming national security threat, the scope of which we probably don't know yet. So I think you're going to see some changes here that may shock us or may seem to be, at least to our neighbors, quite a change from how we've done business in the past. Harvey, did you have a reaction to that? Yeah, I think this is one of the old issues that we have is how do you actually define national security law? And it's being creeping into the concept of what we understand as now an economic industrial policy for national security interests. So you raised the issue of TikTok, but I was with the government where we went through the issue of ZTE and Huawei and having those products removed from our government networks, which was upheld. I remember it was a great DHS case. But this issue of what is economic warfare and economic interests, and that raises, do you guys think we're moving towards what sort of affectionately referring to as the splinter net, that we're going to have one net internet that's going to be Russian Chinese focused, and then we're going to have a Western internet with the European US focus, and that one of the demonstrations of this is the recent bill mentioned the recent legislation concerning war crimes, but the recent legislation on the support of chip manufacturing is unprecedented. And we have had now tens of billions, hundreds of billion dollars being 
spent so that we can create a quote a domestic chip capability in order to maintain the new sort of technological wall so that we will not have chips from foreign powers and that will have a big dramatic impact on our ability to innovate and go forward so i don't know how you all feel is that now an appropriate area for national security is this concept of economic war that we're slowly sort of tiptoeing into with china the reality is chips are in everything so i i don't know how it's not a national security issue when it's sort of the beginning of all supply chain on things military and communications i would agree with that on economic issues or there something can be both a very significant national security issue and a significant economic issue and chips i think are the perfect example i mean we have to have strong capability to manufacture chips and we can't be relying on other countries particularly not china so there that has very significant national security implications you know i do think you can go too far in defining any economic issue as a as a national security issue but on the supply chain side i think it's you know for those kinds of critical products i do i do see it yeah. bill where do you think the lines are if any i i think one of the in this theme of economic matters that pertains to national security i'd i'd worry now in 2023 more ever than even before about hardening our critical infrastructure cyber intrusions ransomware and other variations are simply going to persist and become more widespread more sophisticated and even though the government has done the federal government has done a fair amount in response to the kinds of intrusions that we've had in the last few years we haven't regulated the private sector to any significant degree and i think you know these recent attacks on pieces of the electric grid shooting out transformers and bringing down you know substations in rural north carolina or in northern california illustrate just how easy it is to impact critical infrastructure the economic impacts of those attacks are staggering we need to face up to the inevitability of actually regulating critical infrastructure to enforce some uh, security measures that can then be monitored and and surveilled and the rest in a coordinated centralized manner but harvey well, we don't really I, define critical infrastructure that well i mean it's in the homeland security act of what is it 2002 the actually i thought one of the best definitions was in 18 usc 2339d which gave specific body to what critical infrastructure was and communication systems banking economic systems the internet and had some broad language oh, yeah. to allow for development so i would say this way then we'll get mary but this raises the chestnut of an issue the committee has been wrestling with as has the economy for the last 25 years which is the public private sharing of information in cyber this has not been resolved despite the decades literally that we have been wrestling with this and at some point the aba report on the pipeline will be coming forward i'm i'm sure professor banks is as happy as i am and mary to see this finally be released it's the birthing of an elephant this report <laughs> and that it raises a lot of the issues of the lack of communication between a critical infrastructure private sector and what the government did to step in to try to resolve that pipeline oil problem 
we've had many, many reports of eventually, if we do not have a clear picture from the private sector of the attacks and the cyber sense that allows the government to take appropriate responses, we're like a blind dog in a meat market, which is that we know there's something there, but we don't know where to take the bite. And this is an ongoing problem that we've had in cyber that then raises the issue, what is the power of CISA? You can do the acronym for the Homeland Security's power and the power of Cybercom and how they're working together in order to identify the sets of problems and then take actions to go forward. And again, another area of the law that is going through, it's a great way to get tenure at a law school, is to write another law review on the gray zone. What actually is activity below the threshold of the projection of force that we seem to be in this cyber war that is a war that has not historically been recognized under the Uniform Court of Military Justice and is eating away at our ability for competition. And every administration I've been involved with since the Clinton administration have tried and to struggle with what is the appropriate, quote, course of action and policy we should be taking. As of to date, 2023, I would say we don't have a clear answer. I'll just jump in with an issue related to ransomware and regulation. And this is sort of one of my predictions for this year, that we're going to see some movement on legislative, certainly executive branch, maybe legislative efforts to to try to regulate or or control in some way cryptocurrency (coughs) because of the explosion of cryptocurrency and the, the relative extreme lack of oversight and regulation and control has been the engine that's sort of driving the expansion of ransomware because that is the payment system for ransomware. Uh, And so I think there's a recognition of that throughout the government with economic implications, obviously, and probably a lot of opposition. But I do think you're going to see a lot more control over cryptocurrency markets and efforts. I think after the fall of FTX, that's likely. And I suspect we're going to find out that there are going to be members who uh, themselves lost money through this. And I would say it's also going to be interesting to see if some of the people who have been promoting it will now become public and say that they were in error in doing so. I noticed that a lot of the venture capitalists who early on were sort of evangelizing on the topic have taken a much more conservative posture in some of their public comments lately. But it'll also be interesting to see if that legislation really addresses cryptocurrency writ large or the enhanced anonymity currencies, which are far harder and sometimes impossible to trace. And I would just, you know, say also the location of any place where you can take the money out, which are called exchanges. And there are also mixers and tumblers and a host of other things. I think we have to remember with any legislation, the likely efficacy, which is much of this takes place offshore and how you're really going to do anything about this is really a puzzle. And the origins of this algorithm are really unknown and how any of this started. But it does, one does have to wonder what it would do to the efficacy of sanctions in terms of ultimately undermining the dollar if it were to expand. So I think some of these recent things may be helpful in getting people to think twice uh, rather than pursuing that um, fountain of youth they think is off in the distance somewhere, because it does feel a little bit like that. I don't know. What do you guys think, Harvey? 
Well, I'm sort of curious because, as you know, there's the possibility under the FTC Section 5 that some well-known celebrities who did commercials in support of these particular commodities may be now liable for participating in fraud on the marketplace. Fortune favors the brave. Is that what you're saying? Well, (laughs) well, no, I I think it's what I'd love to see TB12, you know him as Tom Brady, number 12, being sued for his activity and trying to market uh, not only the guy's um, going through a lot. Andy won yesterday. <laughs> I, well, yes, he did come back, but he's not only for his deflated <laughs> football fraud on the marketplace, but also now for his advertising, a commodity that in itself appears to be deeply flawed. And and mm-hmm. yet he was willing to lead, lend his name to this. So I think anyone who's a Tampa Bay plan should be concerned of whether or not quarterback Brady might be in the Huskow during the playoffs if this goes forward. I think the defense for Tom Brady is that neither of his parents were law professors. That, <laughs> and not, not only were they not law professors, they never wrote an essay saying that there should never be punishment. Okay, well, it's. I think we, we're going to have to wrap this up. I'm really glad you guys came out to talk to me tonight. And I just want to tell our listeners also, you know, on the subject of the private sector and sort of expert controls and CFIUS and whatnot, we're going to be having one of those luncheons that I'm always telling you, you need to attend. Because as we mentioned very early on, when we first started doing this podcast, social networking is really not networking. You have to actually show up and talk to people. You have to be seen and you have to come and listen and show up. So you can do that on February 22nd. We're having a luncheon. And this time it's going to feature Matt Axelrod, who is the Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement at the Bureau of Industry and Security, which is part of the Department of Commerce. And Commerce is a participant in CFIUS, if if you did not already know that. And the person who will be asking him questions is committee member and brilliant guy, Raj Day. So that will also be wonderful to watch the two of them. Both of them are incredibly nice guys. It's really going to be a great luncheon and you should be there. And I just want to thank all three of you for coming in and talking to me tonight. I really appreciate it. And I think what we should do is at the end of 2023, we should do an assessment and re-listen to this and see where we are. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope that you will tune in next week. And remember, please review us on your listening app of choice. It's very important to get your feedback. It's very important to the podcast and it only takes a moment. I would also say to you that We're going to uh, post a link in the notes to some of the other podcasts that we've done on the topics that we've discussed tonight, ideas about the Supreme Court, Section 230. We'll probably also post a podcast that we did with Alex Stamos at the Stanford Internet Research Lab, because I think it was uh, very prescient in terms of his discussion of social media algorithms and how they are by design to push us into these uh, information silos and extremist views for the sake of monetization, something called micro-targeting algorithm. But I think it might be worth your time to re-listen to that cast. And he certainly is a a brilliant guy on the topic, as Harvey knows. Thank you very much for listening. Your producer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Co-producing this with me is Holly McMahon and all the members of the standing committee, including my three guests tonight, who I am always grateful for their help and suggestions, because without the standing committee members, this really wouldn't be a podcast. Our editor is Francis Burkham, 
And our program manager is Rebecca Salido. So we'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.